Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. This episode of Other People is brought to you by TNB Books, the official independent press of TheNervousBreakdown.com. Please be sure to check out its latest title, The Beautiful Anthology, edited by Elizabeth Collins, who was my guest on episode 84 of this program. The Beautiful Anthology is now available wherever books are sold online. It features the work of several talented writers, all of them riffing on the subject of beauty. Diana Speckler, the author of Who by Fire and Skinny, says, quote, Subverting time-worn cliches about beauty, the beautiful anthology delivers a fresh exploration of everything from body art and big noses to musical perfection and misguided parenting. And Marion Winnick, author of First Comes Love and the Glenrock Book of the Dead, says, quote, Each essayist and poet takes a big messy concept like beauty and combines it with the intimate materials of his or her life to make something lovely and new. That's the beautiful anthology edited by Elizabeth Collins. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is about talking and listening. This is about books and writing. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in, as always. Uh, What is happening? I am exhausted. That is what's happening. Uh, I don't like to complain about it. I don't want to complain about being exhausted, but I am exhausted, and that is the truth. Uh, I was out late last night. That's what happened. I went to a party, and I drank uh, alcohol in excess, which is something that I don't do all that much anymore uh, because, you know, circumstances in life have conspired. Uh, I'm older. I've got a lot of work to do. I have a child and so on. And uh, and so today uh, I have been feeling slightly hungover and a little groggy all day long. Uh, and the whole thing, I guess, it's sort of random. Uh, I was at the ESPYs, which is the uh, the Oscars of sports, I guess you could say, the Academy Awards of the sporting world. And uh, it's an annual event on ESPN, uh, the Cable Sports Network. And uh, I'm here in Los Angeles, and I got some tickets to the show. And, uh, and then I got to go to the after party where I was uh, surrounded by a variety of world-class athletes and entertainers, uh, nearly all of whom uh, are in their 20s and, uh, and worth in excess of $50 million a piece. 
which uh, is pretty surreal when you think about it. And uh, as I was standing there uh, last night, I had to fight the urge to compare myself to these people, uh, a psychological process uh, that inevitably uh, led to uh, acute agony and the grim realization that uh, I am, in a totally irrevocable way, uh, an average human specimen, and I am careening uh, toward age 40, and I will never know uh, what it's like to run at speeds in excess of 30 miles an hour, for example. I will never know uh, what it's like to run that fast in a giant stadium with uh, approximately 75,000 people screaming my name at the top of their lungs in a deranged collective frenzy. Uh, I will never dunk a basketball on a regulation hoop, ever. I will never have 2% body fat uh, unless I'm horribly ill. I will never hit a three-pointer at the buzzer. I will never win Olympic gold. And I will almost certainly never receive uh, a signing bonus in excess of $30 million, for example, uh, nor, nor will I have my own brand of tennis shoe, and so on. So anyway, I, I went uh, to this show. I went to this party. I saw uh, people. I drank to excess. I tried not to compare myself. Uh, I then compared myself. And, uh, at one point I did think about talking to some of the athletes, but, uh, I didn't do it. Uh, I I think I was feeling, uh, insecure. I think I was feeling like there wouldn't be anything to talk about. It just, it just didn't feel right. I never know how to do that kind of thing. And so I just sort of stood there and drank vodka and then I went home and I fell asleep and then I woke up and I felt a bit hungover and I went for a run immediately Uh, to sort of atone, uh, which is something that I do when I drink to excess. I I went for a run to kind of punish myself for being hungover, uh, which uh, behaviorally speaking is is kind of like another uh, ball of yarn to untangle, but I'm not going to do that right now. Uh, I am now uh, sitting here essentially uh, in front of this microphone divulging this information to you, and uh, I think I'm feeling kind of odd about it. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today is Scott McClanahan. His latest book 
is called The Complete Works of Scott McClanahan, Volume 1. It is available now from Lazy Fascist Press. Lazy Fascist Press. Uh, Scott is from West Virginia. He was born there. He was raised there. He lives there now, uh, and he writes there. And uh, this is he. I believe that's the correct grammar. This is he talking to me on the telephone. I'm in Beckley right now, and, well, actually, it's my wife's house. And uh, she, she's lived here for, actually, she grew up in this house and moved away for a while. And uh, and I'm in her kitchen, actually. So. Okay. Beckley, West Virginia, 25801. Yeah, and then that's where you're from. That's where, like, you're, you're born and raised and have lived there all well, your life. Well, uh, I'm, like, an hour away from here. Like, Beckley's kind of a coal boss town. It's kind of like... I don't know, kind of a little bit more right wing than where I'm from. It's a little bit more, it's a little bit more kind of wild and crazy from right now. It's more this 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 area is more like a town. And right now, there's like 1,500 people here. I think Beckley's like probably 16,000, 17,000 somewhere around that, or at least kind of the surrounding area. So this was always the place that we would come, like if we were going to go to the movies, like every like once every month or. If you wanted to go to a bookstore or something like that, that's where we'd come to Beckley. So you drove an hour to do that? Yeah, pretty much. We had a movie theater in town for a while, uh, but then it closed down relatively shortly. Um, Reno used to be a big town, but then once, you know, mechanization and the coal mines and everything happened, it just kind of became... Well, it's, I mean, there's part of it. In Reno, that used to be... Um, the Meadow River Lumber Company, probably if you own a piece of furniture from before 1970, probably that timber came from around the area of Raynell. That was the largest uh, hardwood sawmill in the world. And uh, then it closed down, I think, in the mid-70s or so. And, and of course, I was, I was born in the late 70s, and uh, it kind of fell on some harder times. But, yeah, we'd, we'd, have to, we'd have to drive to pretty much do anything, which had its pluses and minuses. So what kind of what kind of I mean you grew up in a, like a, like with neighbors or were you kind of like a, like I'm trying to get a picture well, of it you know was it yeah was it yeah I mean well it's we grew up I grew up on the side of a hill and I lived in what was called a continental which was like a double wide trailer but it has like a foundation so it's like a <laughs> it's like super fancy um, but but Reynolds incorporated town we have a post office and everything but even when people talk about my work they always talk about small towns and Reno has an element of the small town to it but most southern west virginia towns they don't even feel like towns they're just these these little communities that kind of pop up as you're as you're driving along the road through uh through you know through the mountains yeah i mean i did some i you know i i walked through west virginia but i you know so i don't have a, a ton of experience with it but i i i know the woods and the hills and then yeah yeah you know oldest it. mountains in the world even older than the himalayas are they really supposedly yeah but i guess you know after ice ages and runoff we're, we're now just little teensy tiny little hills for the most part so uh, even like the new even like the new river i mean that's that's one of the oldest rivers in the world, which runs directly through. Well, it comes up from West Virginia. Well, it comes from southern uh, southwestern Virginia, up through southern uh, Virginia, and runs directly north. It's one of like maybe eleven or twelve rivers in the world that runs directly north, and it's been here since pretty much the inception of the universe, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and, and I take it that you like it there. I mean, obviously, if you're still there, you must you must like it. N- no, I don't know. If I, do. <laughs> I know that sounds strange. I, um. I guess when you grow up with kind of regional values, it's really difficult to leave. Like for instance, my wife. I mean, she's she's 
she's from West Virginia, but she's not really like a West Virginian. Like her father is from Roanoke and her mother's from the North side of Chicago. And her father came here after he graduated from Virginia tech as an engineer. And she's lived in Amsterdam. She's lived in Denver and she's lived all over, you know, the United States. I could not even imagine leaving though. It's this kind of old weird thing. That's kind of a part of me. I'd, I'd like to, but there, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of positives to it as well. Staying here. I've, I've kind of had to, fight to stay here there's not there's not like a whole lot of stuff that you can that you can do yeah, so, know, for the most part so what do you do i mean aside from writing do you have to do other stuff in order i to- teach yeah i teach I, I went and uh i got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree pretty much if you're going to stay in this area you have to either uh get like a teaching certificate and work in the public schools i work at a community college where i teach just you know just like 101 english 101 type classes but they're even different from like typical college classes we do like a lot of developmental stuff it's more like work placement uh classes for like two-year certificates so you either teach in the public schools or you get some sort of certificate or a nursing degree to you know white people's butts or for them or you you can you can still even in this area if you work in the coal mines people like to talk about what a horrible job that is but you know most of those guys they work you know, X number of hours a week and make sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars. So that's you know, it's a really, it's a really good job. But that's pretty much, you know, what what you have here. Well, I mean, you know what? If you work in a coal mine, you should make eighty thousand dollars a year at least. Yeah, well, they're all they're all pillheads too. They get that money, and uh, that's one of our big problems as well in the community. They get that, they get that quick money, and uh, I guess you have to do something to. Um, mess with your consciousness when you're underground yeah i mean no it's like and you know i was uh i'm I'm sure you probably uh i don't know i don't i don't want to talk about something that's probably like super obvious but have you heard have you ever seen that movie the the wild and wonderful whites of west virginia oh yeah yeah i I actually um jessica's sister asked me to smoke pot with her one time in a parking lot in uh huntington i didn't smoke pot with her but I was offered uh, as long uh, uh, with the back seat of a car. I think that's where she was doing it. Yeah, no, Jessica was. Yeah, he was supposed to show up, like to do his little dancing act. And he didn't show up, so she she was offering drugs to people. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> it goes down. That movie just like completely like you know stays with you. Like the scene where the uh, woman's in the hospital after giving birth. And <laughs> yeah, she, exactly. Oh my God, you know. But well, for instance, yeah, for instance, my wife had uh, a baby a year ago. Well, no, it's been two years ago now. She just had a she had her second child just here a couple months ago, but two years ago. And that nurse on that shift said that she could count. She's been at Raleigh General for you know fifteen twenty years, and she said she could count on one hand you know the number of shifts, just shifts that she's worked where she hasn't had to deal with you know child protective services, you know where mothers of mothers of you know had drug problems or or whatever. There's there's a definite problem with that sort of stuff in this area. Well, no, and it's as, like- as elsewhere, but it just kind of gets kind of perpetuated i guess well no but i feel like i feel like there's been like in the last decade a a, a, a real surge in terms of like pharmaceutical abuse and obviously meth meth is a problem but it feels to me like yeah. pills are especially bad and yeah the increasing. big thing around here is like painkillers and and even if you think like oxycontin i mean that was marketed for this area because you have you know a, a high number of industrial accidents or you know a slight you know, something falls on you in the coal mine, or you're out in the, you're out, you know, and doing some sort of timber job, and a tree falls on you. So they would, they would kind of recruit doctors from the area to prescribe this stuff without realizing just the just the effects, uh, you know, that these drugs would would have on people. I taught a uh, class for us at the federal prison 
Uh, and probably the majority of those guys who are from this area were, you know, Oxycontin, uh, you know, arrests where they got caught up in it. Ordinary people one day, six months later, you know, they're, you know, scratching the scabs on their faces and, you know, offering, offering stuff, you know, to, to people to, to get their, get their drugs. Well, so how did you, how did you get around all that? I mean, did you, did you ever find yourself at risk or in any kind of situation where you were doing, uh, lots of drugs? It doesn't sound like it. Uh, no, I mean, uh, I, my parents, well, my mother, who was, again, not, she was, she was from here originally, but then they left and then she came back to teach here in the, in the seventies. Uh, I just, I was always really close to, uh, my parents and I never really gotten, got involved with it. I mean, I was around it a lot, but at the same time, even with that, that was kind of pre from where, you know, I was growing up for the most part, you know, even kids that, you know, the worst thing that you would do when I was like in high school was like, you know, mad dog 4040, you know, <laughs> stupid stuff like that right. or huffing gasoline. It's like poor people's drugs. There's like, there's like a classification you know, of, you know, what, certain people at socioeconomic level do and what certain people at another socioeconomic level do. So for the most part, I always stayed away from it. And I think that also saw just kind of the, I mean, we, we have a whole lot of that, don't we? Where people want to tell you the drugs they do. And it always feels a little bit phony. Um, because I've known some, I've known some drug addicts even in the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And they're not bragging. They're not bragging a whole lot. Uh, so, so I think I always need to kind of stay away from it. I mean, I have an, I have enough, I have enough going against me, let alone having some sort of drug addiction. So what, what's going against you? Like, do, aside from the, uh, you know, drugs aside, uh, accent, geography. Uh, I mean, we could go on and on. Do you have, let me ask you this. Do you feel, um, that there's any chip on your shoulder because of that? You know, like, do you feel like, uh, fuck yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to say no, but I'm sh- I'm sure there is, and w- I think that's maybe one of the worst things about being from this area is there's this, and I don't know if it's a chip on your shoulder, but there's like an insecurity about yourself, so that you, so that you have certain things that I guess you could see as being against you, but therefore, for instance, we have what we call the Battle of Point Pleasant, which happened in I think 1764. And we call it the first battle of the American Revolution. You know, and it's not the first battle of the American Revolution. It was part of the Seven Years' War, the French French and Indian Wars. But yet we have to always make sure that this is – so I guess maybe pride, and I'm talking about kind of biblical pride, is something that's maybe also kind of a downfall. But yeah, I think think there's a – yeah, I guess I have a chip on my shoulder. And then what did you say about your, you know, you said you were close to your folks, but, and your mother was a teacher, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, she was a school teacher, and she moved back to this area, and... From where? Like, what was lived the... Where? She, well, she, she had, well, originally she was born, well, actually she was born about two miles from where, I sit, where I'm sitting now, in the old Beckley Hospital, which is, if you know any Hank Williams lore, too, supposedly they saw him there that morning on the morning of his death. After he'd supposedly already died, there's all this kind of Hank Williams lore because Hank Williams died in the Cadillac, probably 15 miles from here in a town called Oak Hill. But anyway, she was born here in Beckley, and her pe- her people were coal camp people from McDowell County. Uh, to give you an idea of being from McDowell County, there's a community called War W A R, and I remember during the Gulf War, uh, you know where they do those Christmas kind of 
that. I miss you. I love you, family, all that stuff. And they're going through, it was on the ABC Nightly News, and they're going through all these guys. You know, he's one guy's from, you know, Patterson, New Jersey, another guy's from, you know, south side of Chicago, and they're talking about, you know, how horrible it is in, uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia or wherever they were at the time. And the guy from war gets on. And, of course, we're cheering because he's from war, and he loved it. He thought it was wonderful in Saudi Arabia. You know, they fed you. It was warm all the time. So it's, so it's, so it's that type of place. Then she, they went to a place called Baileysville, which was like a railroad community, which is also in southern West Virginia. And then they moved to, this is really fascinating, isn't it? And then they moved to first Indiana and then Dayton, Ohio. And that's where she spent the majority of her years in Dayton, Ohio, because my grandfather worked for uh, NCR, National Cash Register Company. I believe Martin Sheen's dad worked for NCR as well. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm from Indiana, so where? where yeah, there you go. She was uh, Columbus, Indiana. Okay. I think Tony Stewart's from there. Yeah, yeah. And that's a NASCAR like, driver. Maybe so. Yeah, it's a. It's, it's, you it's, should know this, Brad. I should know. I should know better. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the state and where Columbus is. I think it's south of Indianapolis. Yeah, it is. It's south. Yeah, she uh, she was baptized in a church that was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, I just thought it was going to be this weird little town and we showed up and it has all this kind of historical architecture and everything because there was a lot of no it's a it's a great architecture town like my uncle yeah, my yeah. uncle's an architect and he actually came to visit because of that it's oh like, cool it's like a cool. destination so yeah. and, and then what about your uh what about your uh dad what what racket was well see he you know, yeah he's kind of uh from you know the opposite side his i guess the first mcclanahan in fayette county which is the county over from here was 1872 name was Thomas. I mean, he was supposedly they, they came through um, Newport News from Ireland or Scotland, wherever they were, you know, were Scott-Irish. And he, they moved to Grundy for a period of time, and then they were in uh, Fayette County in 1872. And from that point, you know, they just were coal mines, and that was it. Uh, his father was uh, LG, who would have been the grandson of Thomas. And, you know, he had tons of brothers. His mother died on him when he was young. He was a moonshiner, you know, all sort of kind of mythology surrounding him. Who, and he worked is in, your grandfather? Yeah, my grandfather, LG, E-L-G-I-E. And, uh, and well, the area that was called Prince, Henry Ford owned a big coal mine there in the 1920s. Uh, most of those mines, and of course they would use them, uh, you know, in the lights of headlights for the for the you know model Fords that that were manufactured. Steinbrenner owned it in the 1960s, but that was kind of at the end of the coal business. So the mines kind of uh, you know traded hands over the course of course of decades. So it was just that typical like the every stereotype that you can imagine. I mean, they were it. Like the McClanahan's, for instance, my father's family. I mean, he's one of 13. Um, Jesus. And uh, he remembers snow coming underneath the door in the winter time, and it was you know was that was that sort of sort of upbringing. And at that time, you know, if you were a coal miner, you weren't making sixty thousand dollars a year and having just to deal with a with an addiction to opiates. You know, you were having to figure out how to how to live. Right. There's a story where there's a story where they didn't pay you for the for the coal. Well, they only paid you for the coal. They didn't pay you for the rock, so that. He he would come home. My dad has this memory of LG coming home, you know, day after day for about two weeks and writing on the calendar, no coal rock, which meant, you know, that they were they were essentially not going to have a paycheck, you know, the next time that it came around. 
Jesus. Okay, so your dad was your dad a coal miner too, or no? No, no. Uh, at that point in time, uh, he graduated high school in '68. So that's kind of post mechanization. So what he tried to do is he well he stuck around for a while, and then he went to we have what we call the Hillbilly Highway, which for um, which for a period of time was what was called Route 23. That's a road from Kentucky up through Ohio into Michigan. Now, like if you're going to talk about the Hillbilly Highway now, it's like 81 and 77, you know, towards the south, and you know, you're working a factory down there now if you're trying to get out of the state. But he went to Flint, which had a big Buick plant. That's just right outside of Detroit, you know, just in a couple of hours outside of Detroit. Sure, yeah. And his, all of his brothers, see, if you were a female, you went to Baltimore, D.C., and you worked in typing pools. And if you were a male, like my Uncle Leslie, for instance, who was the brother before my father, only two years old, my Uncle Leslie was probably making as much money, you know, his second or third year out of high school as my grandfather made probably in a decade-long period, uh, just in one year. Uh, but then when my father got up there, he always says it was the you know age of Nixon, so he stayed. He worked in the gas station up there for just a just a short while, and then he came back here. And what he did for thirty years, he he worked in the grocery store. Doing what? Just working like the administration. He was pro- well. He he worked in produce, which uh, I mean, I worked at Kroger for a couple of different summers. And I mean, what you do originally? He didn't become produce manager until probably about 20 years in. It might have been a little bit earlier than that. But what you do, you know, when you work produce is people think when they get their celery or they think when they get their broccoli, oh, it's so beautiful, celery and broccoli and all that sort of junk, you know. Well, there's somebody in the back room where that celery's coming in who's preparing that celery for a presentation, you know, on the floor. So you'll open up a box that's been picked by, you know, poor Mexican immigrants, right? And there'll be snakes in the box. There'll be dirt all over the celery. You'll have to trim the celery. And so essentially it's that. But then it's also mainly working the back of trucks where you're taking a couple of tons of produce off a truck, like on delivery day. You'll probably have a couple of tons. It's overwhelming. You know, I thought that it was a simple job until I worked it. But um, you'll have a couple of tons of produce, and then you'll essentially just kind of follow, uh, you know, a process that they call rotation, where you'll then take stuff out on the floor. Old stuff will be pushed up to the front so the people will buy the old stuff. New stuff will kind of go towards the back. But then once he was produce manager, that is when he's he was in charge of ordering. He was in charge of ordering. Um, and really just, it was more of kind of, uh, you know, where he was over a couple of kids that were working underneath him. Kroger's went through a transformation. People talk about all these Occupy Wall Street kids, you know, where in the hell have they been for the past four years? When, if you were, if you were working at Kroger in 1970, it was a solid job. It was union. You had benefits. You had retirement. Um, you know, you had a health care plan of some sort. Uh, but now, for the most part, they've went more to that, you know, kind of bogus Walmart model where they're mostly, you know, hiring kids. They're mostly hiring ex-cons, that sort of thing. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a different it's a different sort of job than, than what it used to be. Yeah. That's another one of my chips on my shoulder. <laughs> Can we get to that eventually? What do, what do you mean? What, just like the... Uh, well, just for instance, yeah, well, my wife, she's a nurse at Raleigh General uh, Hospital. Even if you take the state of West Virginia and the union movement. Uh, the union movement in the state of West Virginia, if you want to talk about national health care, United Mine Workers had national health care in 1948. 
you know, the hospital that the hospital that my wife works at, which is called Appalachian Regional Hospital, which is where they discovered black lung, a lot of kind of technological innovations along those lines. That was a deal that was brokered between John Lewis, who was uh, UMW chairman at the time, and Harry Truman, and that was going to be the start of your national health care in 19-freaking-48. Uh, so, you know, weekends, uh, insurance, uh, eight-hour days, all that stuff's essentially kind of grown up out of this area, and nobody knows about it. Like you so, mean you mean like all the different national movements in terms of workers' rights? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. At least we fought for it. There's a lot of talk that goes on. For instance, and we have what we call the West Virginia Mine Wars that happened between 1918 and 1922, and that was really once see Gompers and Roosevelt even before that they they got certain members of the union who were a little bit more I guess we can say you know PC. Uh, but if you talk about the West Virginia Mon Wars, you know, that's what all of those battles were about. Uh, we had the largest insurrection against the federal government since the Civil War, and it was an insurrection against the federal government for the rights that liberals are fighting for right now. You know, they were fighting for them in the beginning part of the 20th century. So I, I guess that's another proud thing, though, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, that... Mother Jones. Mother Jones is from Southern. Well, at least she's not from Southern West Virginia, but this is where she this is where she did her work. Well, but it's just in all that stuff, like, it, it just strikes me as interesting that, like, you know, there are so many different elements of our society. Like, the, the, the politicians obviously have health care, and uh, the military gets health care. Uh, the super poor people get health care. And then there's just, like, this bulk of people. And yeah, then the senior, exactly. senior, senior citizens get it, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's just that arguments, uh, I don't know, frustrates Well, me. for instance, even here in this state, you know, the past six Six days, seven days. I don't know if you've been following CNN. We haven't had power. It was Monday afternoon, and I was thinking, what the hell am I going to do when Brad Listy calls? Because we were having problems with our telephone lines as well. We had a storm come through Friday evening, and um, because of deregulation in the late 90s, we have Appalachian Power still a week later uh, trying to figure out how to get power restored back to people. Some people's power aren't. And it's not going to be restored until until Sunday. Uh, is it still, is it see, still well, hot? Is it still hot as hell out there? Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's in you know that's in the nineties. Yeah. So we we luckily you know had ours restored fairly early. But my parents, for instance, you know in Raynell, an hour away, they're they're still waiting on their power to be restored. So this that I guess what I'm trying to say is this you know this this area this electricity that we're using right now it comes from coal as much as i despise some of the coal lobby and everything but it's also a forgotten area people could care less right they flip on their lights and they could care less about the people who have lived here you know richest natural mineral resources in the world in the world and it's it's been ripped from the area and the people are i think you know i've heard wolf blitzer say on cnn this morning third poor state in the in the nation, so that's you know that's some of the stuff that you're kind of surrounded, you know, you're surrounded by as you as you grow up in this place. Well, and it would you know it would inevitably find its way into your work if you're a creative artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't deny that, right? I mean, it's got to it's got to have some impact on you as you sit down to do your work. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, what about and and speaking of your work, like I'm interested to hear. Uh, how you came to write? I mean, you know, where do you where do you get it from? Can you trace it? I have no clue. There was a we had. You remember the big blizzard of '92? For some reason, 
like that weekend of the blizzard, I've just uh, like I found my muse, <laughs> and I decided I was going to be a poet. And this was like when I mean I was probably 11 years old, and so I sat down and I wrote this I wrote this poem about a bluebird, and then I wrote another poem, and that poem was about another real radical topic, which I think I wrote about cardinal or something like that. And so I've really just con- I've just continued on from there. I don't even know if it's inspiration or anything like that. It's almost this sort of strange graphomania, like this habit that I, that I can't get rid of. What was but the- that's, that's kind of where it started. When I, was, like, when I was just a kid, and I just kind of kept doing it. Okay, so the blizzard, though, but the blizzard just shut you in, so you had to find a way to entertain yourself? Is that what it was? Yeah, maybe so. And... Uh, I always had a sort of strength. I remember being in first grade, and I remember I went to Rupert Elementary School, and that was one of those real old classrooms. It was away from, like, the more modern part of the school. And so you still had your coat room, and the floors were still, like, hardwood floors. And I remember, and the windows were real strange and old, and I remember the light coming through the windows. I remember looking at all all the kids and having a thought of, this is this is all gonna pass. You're all gonna disappear one day. It's the strangest thing for a first grader to have as a thought. But I consciously remember having that thought, and I guess that I, I'm sure that sort of you know, consciousness or that sort of uh, you know being able to pay attention to those particular things just kind of continued from that point. Well, I know. I think that a lot of artists. I mean, that's interesting to, to hear you say that because I do think a lot of artists have a certain uh, heightened awareness of mortality. I think that might yeah. drive, or you know what I'm saying? Like I feel, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I wish I, was, I wish I could just be stupid. You know, I wish I could just go through. And I know a lot of times when we talk about these, you know, arty farty things, people talk about these kind of lofty sort. But I don't look at it that way. I guess it's I'm kind of from more of the Freudian perspective, where it almost feels like a sickness. I wish I could just go through the day without having to worry about. You know, trying to do a video or trying to write a story or something along those lines. I wish I could. I wish I could eat Twizzlers in in peace. All right. Yeah, well, but you and you are. You're pretty, you know, prolific. You do a lot of work. So when is it all getting done? And and um, it does it come in? It seems like something that's like really compulsive. Is that the right word, or is it? Uh, most of that, most of that work was done probably within the past ten years. Um, I probably haven't written a whole. Well, you know what? I wrote that stories stories five. That's really like the last book book that I wrote from start to finish. Probably two years ago, whenever it was published, I did it like the year before, and kind of cranked them out. But like the books that are coming out next year uh, with New York Tire and, and Two Dollar Radio, those are those books are fairly old. I mean, I've I've gone through multiple versions of them. I remember writing a version of Hill William in the year 1999. Uh, so, uh, but you know, the prolific thing, is, I guess, is kind of you know it's a little bit more of a mirage than anything else. Okay, so what about uh, what about work ethic and uh, that kind of thing? Like, I mean, you know, did you have an apprentice? Did you have? I mean, you must have had apprentice years uh, or whatever. Uh, nah. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess so. I mean, I, I don't, I don't. That's it's kind of the cliche, isn't it? That you write a certain number of words, or that's the kind of Malcolm Gladwell Beatles theory, right? That you're in Hamburg for a certain number of years, and therefore you can, you know, write a particular song. I don't, I don't know if I believe that to be true, but yeah, I probably. So I was writing from '92 
pretty much every day until, and I would say that the stuff that I'm publishing now probably first started maybe seven years ago, somewhere along those lines, where at least it was something that you could that you could publish. It was something that someone would enjoy to read rather than just kind of jottings in a notebook or that kind of 16-year-old girl poetry that we have in all of us, or 16-year-old boy poetry as well. Um, but, yeah. Okay, so when you were, when you said you were working every day, this is like while you're in high school and stuff like that. You were doing- yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'd come home from school and work. I would try to sneak my English book uh, out because I rode the bus, and I would always sneak my English book home. I remember one time there was a girl I liked, and she sat down beside me. She's like, "Why are you taking your English book home?" And there was a passage from Finnegan's Wake. And the story that we had in the high school English book, it was probably Araby or something, you know, from Dubliners. But there was a passage from Finnegan's Wake, and I was obsessed with that passage because it just seemed so kind of weird and far out. And I remember getting, I remember getting Finnegan's Wake for my 16th birthday. We had to order it. We had a Walton book here in Beckley. And we came over here for my birthday, and we had ordered uh, Finnegan's Wake, and uh, they took, I picked up like this Merle Haggard box set. So I had Merle Haggard and Finnegan's Wake, <laughs> and that's what I that's what I took home for my birthday that year. My God! So okay, so was, Joyce was an influence early, uh, and then who else? Yeah, for yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, there's, there's so so many folks. I mean, I was I was obsessed with Joyce. I mean, I guess everybody kind of goes. To be honest with you, I think everybody goes through. You know what really started out was I remember buying when I was in the sixth grade because I liked the Doors. That no one here gets out alive biography, and I read an essay not too long ago where somebody was making the case for that book. I can't remember if it was in GQ or some sort of magazine like that, and I was like, son of a bitch, somebody stole my idea for this essay. Because from that stupid book, you know, I learned about Arto, I learned about Celine, I learned about his, uh, I remember he's doing Tennessee Williams. I started kind of getting into Tennessee Williams. He did like a Tennessee Williams play when he was in high school. I learned about Michael McClure. So that book kind of led to all these little other offshoots that I was interested in for, for a period of time. Um, but I've always, I've always had just, you know, a crazy sort of range of what I've been influenced by or what I've liked. I don't know if I follow any sort of pattern. Because at the same time, even though I like Joyce, it's also one of those where it's at a certain point in time, I think I had maturity not to realize it's just it's a lot of word games. You know, and that's, that's, that's really what it is. It's just word games. Same with Beckett, too. He'll go on and on about Beckett and Beckett novels. And as much as I love Samuel Beckett, you know, he starts he – starts, he starts writing, and we're, I think we're kind of continuing in that kind of Joycean lineage, and a lot of people that consider themselves like experimental writers or whatever you hear these terms, I think they're still kind of continuing in that. Well, you know, back at, he quit writing novels. He even changed the language he was writing in, because I think that, you know, at a certain point in time, you can only push that word game stuff so far. Yeah, I mean, eventually it just, I mean, I think if you work in one vein. Yeah. Well, for instance, I've been uh, kind of going back through some, like, old James Elroy books. You know, The Crime Writer? How in the hell is James Elroy not mentioned on HTML John or these sites as being a masterful pro stylist? Or like a Nick Toshis, uh, who I think Julian Schnabel and Johnny Depp's going to make one of his novels. In the Hands of Dante, I think's the name of the book. I've read it before. Um I think that's the title. They're gonna make one of his novels into a film. How in the hell is not you know is Nick Tosh is not 
a you know a part of the a part of the conversation. So I feel like yeah, I mean I love I love tons of people. Yeah, well, and it's, it's you know and you say that and it's like you start to like think about all the writers you might not even be aware of, and I just it feels to me like. Uh, and then I've had this conversation before. Like it feels like there are probably so many really great writers who don't get the the audience they deserve. You know? Yeah, for sure. I think I even mentioned in an interview last year. I read the I finally read the autobiography of Chuck Berry, uh, which Grell Marcus always lists as like the best rock autobiography you know ever written. And it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing to open up the book, but because we have all you know all these layers and all these conditionings, we you know we look at it as oh, it's just you know rock star autobiography rather than as this you know really perfect piece of piece of art, which is you know what it is. What is that? I mean, what, you, the, what makes it so great? I haven't read it, so I mean, what what about it? Oh gosh, I mean, he um, talks about going out on stage and uh, uh, being so nervous that he farts. Uh, there is this kind of mixture of low comedy, and uh, he, he, he even breaks down chapters, for instance, or he breaks down a song in a single chapter, and he'll tell you how he wrote it. So that there's almost this lack of, there's this lack of that I'm making literature, which is I think probably the kind of cross that modernism has to bear is that Chuck Berry could care less. He's just going to tell you a story about his. He's going to there's a there's a sentence in it in which he says. Uh, uh, you know, I've heard I've heard the screams of millions, but the most beautiful sound is the moan of one. That's 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 one of the. And of course, Chuck Berry's a crazy pervert. Don't get me wrong, but uh, and has been arrested for those things. But that particular sentence, you know, there's something about that that's it's just him. It's just sometimes when people ask me, like when I'm doing readings and stuff, uh, they always say, "Well, how do you what, what do you do?" Blah blah blah, blah that sort. I guess just I'm always telling me I'm just trying to make my inner, my outer, or my outer, my inner, and Barry's there. You know, that's his, that's his voice, that's his story, that's him. Not to say that the story's true in any ways, but the myth that he's made of himself, he made himself into that. And uh, there's there's something fascinating about it. Well, yeah, no, there's certain people like you know, like they just have that kind of freedom. They seem to embody a certain kind of freedom, or they have some sort of like. Uh, creative instinct that just is like almost unerring you know what i'm yeah. saying it, barry's obsessed with his taxes he'll spend a whole entire chapter telling you about his taxes it's almost like the bible you know the old testament where in the book of chronicles they're going to give you all this stupid genealogy that you care less about and so that he's also he's going to give you a whole entire chapter about taxes i mean where in the hell are you going to find that in a modern novel a whole entire chapter where somebody's bitching about the taxes that they're that they're having to pay so that i guess that's what's kind of refreshing about some of those books which also make it feel sort of, I wouldn't say ancient, but you know these books from the past that uh, we've kind of lost lost track of. There's a great book by John Aubrey called Brief Lives. He was a contemporary of Shakespeare, and it's a whole entire book of all the people he ever knew. You know, think think of somebody trying deciding they're going to sit down and say, "Oh, come on, I'm just going to sit down and jot down every anecdote," which is a bad word again in the 20th century, 21st century. I want to jot down every single anecdote of every person that I know, uh, and that's that's what he that's what he does. Uh, I can't as, even as remember. Somebody. I'm just like it's a, to me. It's like forget about literature. It's just a, a feat of memory that's impressive. Yeah, exactly. And of course, he's making up half of it as he as he goes along. Or you know, the Suetonius is the Twelve Caesars, or you know, the Diary of Samuel Pepys, or any of these books that are kind of part of the canon but aren't part of the canon, or kind of these forgotten sort of works off to the 
off to the side that just still feel like they're, you know, freaking alive. They still have that kind of dirty stink to them, um, which is refreshing. Okay. So, uh, and I want I want to make sure before we get, uh, you know, too deeply into the new work and the writing that uh, I finish asking you about your family. Like, do you have any siblings? We got your parents, but I'm curious to know if you had any brothers or sisters. And... Not that I know of. You're an only so child. I'm an only, yeah, I'm an only child. Only child. Oh wow. Which okay. may have something to do with it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you, were, you had more time to yourself to read when you were a kid or something. Yeah, exactly. And then, and also, I think I was I was maybe a little bit more. <coughs> excuse me. Um. I was probably also maybe a little bit more of the kind of family unit, a little bit more so than <coughs> I just got choked on some Mountain Dew Amps energy drink. This may be the first time on Brad Listy's other people podcast that this has happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's like we're breaking new ground. Uh, I planned that, actually, <laughs> right here at 40 minutes after. And my plan worked. That's right. <laughs> But yeah, I guess I was maybe more part of the, you know, the family unit. Like I'm extremely close to my mother, and even, and even in some ways too, you know, I've been extremely close to my father. So they were kind of my friends, and maybe also it's kind of I hate, I hate to go back to all these you know stupid sociology, you know, economics sort of talk. But about '83, uh, about a year, you know, into the first you know Reagan administration, or well about three years in the first Reagan administration, the coal mine jobs that had been there just completely just dried up. So every kid that I knew on my street, and again, it was a street, it was a gravel road on the side of a mountain, but every kid that I knew, I mean, they moved because their father either primarily worked for the railroad or they drove, you know, a coal truck, coal truck. So for the most part, you know, I, I you know, I had to, I had to hang out with the folks and uh, so that kind of kept me away from some of the things you have to deal with. Well, sure. No, I mean, I, I think like just having like you know uh, a good relationship with family, whether it's a one parent or two parents or some combination of parent and sibling. Um, yeah, not to say that someone else, because I think I should say that. I mean, somebody in again Minnesota probably has a close relationship to their family too. It's not just because of the geography of the area. Area, you know, there's assholes on every block whether it's west virginia or minnesota so yeah but i mean i think just having that as like a uh it's like an anchoring influence definitely keeps you from getting into some of the stuff that might befall other people you know what i'm saying yeah yeah wherever you happen to be wherever you happen to be yeah so i want to ask you uh about uh you know i guess alt lit or i'm trying to i'm trying oh gosh yeah i want to sounds like a dog food doesn't it it does but i want lit you, Dogs love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is like, you know, your work uh, seems to fall somewhere uh, in that spectrum. I mean, do you agree, disagree? Do you have a sense of, like, do you, do you have a, let me ask you this. Like, because this, you wonder, I guess I wonder how much conscious. We're on, we're on shaky ground here, Mr. Listy. Yeah, we are. But it's like, you know, how much conscious effort is there to sort of define oneself within a certain movement? And how much of that do you feel is completely out of your control? Like, have you, have you, do you feel like you're operating in a certain school or do you feel like what you're doing uh, is part of something new or do you feel kind of wholly removed from it and that people, um, you know, uh, are defining you and. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that perception or at least if I am fit in that kind of world, there's probably that perception. 
But at the same time, even with these groups and movements and everything, it reminds me of something that I heard John Waters say about gay marriage, where he was asked about gay marriage, and he said, you know, the wonderful thing about being a gay dude in the 60s is he didn't have to do all the stupid shit that straight dudes had to do, like get married. So I guess one of the great things about being a writer, or if you consider yourself a writer, whatever it is that you do, is that there's you're an individual, and, uh, you know, I guess if, if the individual's an individual, truly, you know, you you're, you you kind of be damned to to have somebody link you to to something else. I love a lot of those kids. Don't get me wrong, um, but uh, but yeah, you know, a lot of my friends, and I don't, and I know that there's kind of been this, or at least here recently, it seems to kind of name something or give kind of this context to something. But I mean, I'm not really interested in in that. You know, God bless people who are doing it, but. It's 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 not my game. And so you're not you don't feel like you're really that uh, heavily involved with it online. Like I'm always just I always view it from what I feel like is a certain remove. But it, and by that I mean I'm looking at my computer screen. But I think that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty much how everyone's viewing it. Except for well, like, see, this is the thing. I've never published online. I've always published books. Um, I've published a couple interviews, really with the nervous breakdown. That's really kind of the first. I think that, uh, see, I published a book with Six Gallery. That was 2009. And I just wrote these stories to put in the books. I wrote stories, stories two, stories five, and then I have these, you know, two books coming out uh, next year. So I've always, I've always done my own thing. I could care less about the whole literary journal thing. There's, there's, <laughs> I guess that you can almost kind of break up the community into a couple, a community you can listen to me. I already sound like a, dickhead uh, you can you can almost kind of break up the community into there's the kind of serious esoteric graduate student who has the t-shirt that says you know i paid x number of dollars for my postgraduate education and all i got was this t-shirt and the terminology i don't understand so you have those folks and then you have i guess kind of the um the people that are wanting to be or wanting to teach on an mfa level uh, who, you know, want to get a suit jacket with those, you know, elbow pads that you get on <laughs> suit jacket. <laughs> and then you sort of have this, you know, kind of third prong to it, which, you know, is kind of the, you know, the, the folks writing about, I don't know, Starbucks and, you know, all those things. And I don't know if I fit into any of those, into any of those categories. Once again, I don't believe that I would have done what I've done at this point if I didn't have those like options available to me, I mean, I've met, I've met so many, really all the writers I know I've met through either contacting them through their blog, like friends of Sam peak. I did a reading with Sam in 2009 and I just get contacted him through his blog, telling him I liked his blog. I didn't even really know what a blog was. Uh, and we did, we, I decided to drive to Chicago and we did a reading. Ben Tanzer was there. Ben Tanzer kind of organized it, uh, for everyone. So that wouldn't have happened. Everything since then wouldn't have happened if you didn't have those channels of the, of the kind of online sort of community. So I guess the channels are more important than the subject matter. You know, if you think about, there are probably, I mean, shit. Think about shitty 19th century poets writing about the telegraph. And that, that felt new and fresh in the 1890s. So I guess what I'm saying is the subject matter is not so much as import, important as just the, the areas to kind of get work out there. 
uh, the independent literature or whatever you want to call it, it didn't have the opportunity uh, to do beforehand. Well, you know, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, you have uh, the Internet, which can seem so unwieldy and just sort of infinite. But when you talk about people who are writing uh, literature and especially, like, yeah. you know, independent literature and, you know, I know it starts to get tedious as you get into classifications, but it, it, it starts to feel smaller and smaller. Like there's not that many people doing this or showing real interest in it. So like when you start to like read blogs or follow links or whatever, you start to realize that it's, it, you know, you keep running into the same people everywhere you go. You know? There's about a hundred people. That's right. it. Right. That's it. People, people sit around like get pissed off at each other and stuff. It's like, who fucking cares? You know, there's a hundred people that cares about this and that's pretty much it. Not to say that it's not going to grow from that, but you know, have a little bit of fun with it, you know, at the same time. Even if we're gonna if we're gonna, you know, hold up our you know, our hallmarks of, you know, this you know, this kind of movement, you know, people are getting book advances for that five thousand dollars. You know, cut that in half with taxes, throw in your fifteen percent, thirty percent agency, whatever in house fees you're having to pay, and really it's like getting a part time job. <laughs> <laughs> having a having a couple extra paychecks come in, so I guess what I, the way I've always looked at it is I've just tried to have fun, and I've tried to I've tried to get to know people, and the people that I've that I've have gotten to know, I mean they're you know they're they're you know they're amazing people, and there are some talents out there that I just you know absolutely love, like who? and so I almost feel like a fan. Oh well, I mentioned Pink, you know Sam, Kindergarten Malone. I mean, Kendra Grant Malone's one of the best writers in the world, and I know she doesn't doesn't appear as if you know she does as much pushing of of her work as you know some people some people do. I love her prose. I wish she'd write more prose. Uh, you know, Chelsea Martin. You know, Chelsea Martin's a name that you don't hear as much of, I guess, as you as you did a couple of years ago. I mean, Chelsea, some of those some of those stories, and you know, they have that kind of comedic bent to it. Some of those stories are you know sentence by sentence like perfect. Um, so, you know, those, those, those sort of writers, and they're, they're a ton, and I'm completely, and this is the problem, right? When you start listing people, and I guess this is the reason why people get upset, is, you know, you start listing people who are supposedly part of something, uh, you, you know, you always end up, you always end up, you know, leaving folks, leaving folks out, but there, there are plenty of amazing, amazing writers out there. Well, yeah, so, like so many, it seems to me. I mean, it's yeah, just... exactly. So, and think about that. That's what's that's what's fascinating too, is that we can all sit here and we can blah blah blah, and my work's this and my work's that and all that junk. But again, it's that kind of Francis Ford Coppola notion of there is some fat girl right now in Ohio who you don't know, and that fat girl's writing a masterpiece, right? <laughs> and uh, and she, you know, you will be you will be forgotten, right? Scott McClanahan, I guarantee it. Even within the hundred people that you know, you will be forgotten. And that girl from Chillicothe or wherever is uh, is doing something amazing, and you don't even know about it. You don't even know about it. Yeah. So I, I think, guess that. Yeah. You know, go ahead. No, I was going to say I think about that sometimes with all the books and all the really good books that come out. Um, you know what causes a work. Uh, you know, a written work to survive. You know, I know is like, yeah. and I guess the the question comes down to obviously word of mouth and and readers reading and passing it from person to person by hand. You know, that's obviously probably uh, one of the predominant ways, if not the predominant way. But then you also politics and power. That too. That's what, that, that's what I was going to say. It's like how much media coverage does a book get? How much of a stir does it cause? Does it get mainstreamed somehow? Yeah. You know, like is that play a role? And uh, well, meaning what I mean by this is we're all going to be on the minority when. 
Mandarin Chinese comes down the pipe or Hindi or whatever, you know, the next language will be, will be in the minority. Shakespeare's Shakespeare because he had, you know, quite a few muskets and rifles behind him. So therefore you can press Shakespeare onto the masses and this is a genius. You know, he is a genius <laughs> of our language and people who accept it are, you know, they get shot. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I got to be honest. Like I, I, I think that I have a lot of, uh, uh, I'm going to start. I don't want to sound foolish talking about this, but I'm just going to say that a lot of Shakespeare bores me. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> go Cervantes. Yeah. Screw Shakespeare. Go Marlowe. Yeah. Marlowe's a better poet than Shakespeare. Maybe not a better playwright. So, okay. So, what about, uh, you know, if you're writing for fun uh, mostly and you're doing it for the enjoyment of it and you have like a realistic uh, concept of what's possible uh, in terms of uh, making a living, like, do you have ambition that way like do you i mean i know it's a long shot but do you ever think to yourself well maybe there's a way for me to eventually just make a living from my writing or is it something that you think is uh, i don't even think i worry about a living i mean i could say oh no oh no but i think if you're doing this there is a certain amount of ego involved and i think truly if you're going to be honest with yourself you know if you don't think you're amazing you wouldn't be doing it to start with um well, that's what you I, may not be amazing. <laughs> I may not be amazing, but there, but there has to be something in that for you to continue doing it, or you would. And I have some. My uncle, for instance, he got his MBA from WVU, um, and he got a job uh, with Cantor Fitzgerald, right? Uh, and classmates of mine, even classmates of mine in, in college, why in the hell would I do what I'm doing? When a classmate of mine can go out, you know, making six figures, you know, knocking some old lady off a of property so they can bring in some sort of mountaintop removal sort of operation, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So with that said, I think it has to be tied into you want it to last or even if it's this, because I think sometimes people confuse audience or they want a big readership. I don't think the big readership's important. I think it's the right type of reader and particularly the right type of influential reader at a certain point in time. So you want to be, you want to be that ghost voice from the past that's, you know, reaching, that's reaching out there and trying to get a hold of, of somebody from the future. It's, it's communication between dead people and living people. It's the only time travel we have. It is the only fucking time travel we have. And that's it. Even if you think about, think of all the Louis Armstrongs we've had. But we didn't have the technology to reproduce that. And we may have, you know, if the whole shithouse goes up in flames, you know, we may not have that technology in the future. So therefore, you have these little abstract symbols that convey all of these signs and signifiers and all that sort of stuff to someone from the future. So I think that's the power and the grip of it. And I, and I definitely am aware of that, as I think probably any, any writer, you know, worth his or her salt so wait, uh, so, is aware so, of it. Okay, so are you saying that you, you feel like when you sit down to write, you're writing to your contemporaries, or do you feel like you're writing to someone in the future? Or, or is no, it I'm writing for me. I'm writing for me. Uh, and therefore, if I write enough to me, because I think sometimes people think they're writing for them, but they're really not writing for them, where you hear people that say, I went back and looked at my diary when I was 18 years old, right? And I thought this, this, and this. Um I don't have, I don't have that feeling about I have that feeling about some of my work, but for the majority of the stuff I've been doing for the past ten years, I look back at it and it's like, it's me. My inner has become my outer. I, I did it. I, I'm kind of conjured that, and so I think if you can do that enough, 
even if it's something that it just appears relatively relatively simple. I mean, I mentioned, you know, Suetonius's The Twelve Caesars. Just a single sentence in which Suetonius, whether it's true or not, who cares, and where Suetonius is mentioning, you know, one of the assassins of Caesar who is stabbing him in the groin, and that's the final wound in a groin. Well, that's strange, right? That's strange. I'm not sure Robert Caro would put that in one of his massive LBJ biographies <laughs> in this day and age. But it feels as if that's something that somebody – well, look at Chaucer, right? It's a bunch of fart jokes. It's a bunch of sex. It's a bunch of dirty jokes. And therefore, because it is pretty honest for the individual at the time, um, you know, you can enjoy it now because we all love – Parts, we all love dirty jokes. We all love all those things. <laughs> Translates across the ages, you know. Exactly, exactly. So uh, when when you say you're writing for yourself, like you, do, it's like obviously for your own enjoyment. But like, are you also writing to make sense of things or to work through a confusion or you know? Do you know uh, none of that. Uh, I guess if you want to look at it in a practical way, I'm writing for. Well, at one point, Tom, I think I've said this before. I was writing for Sarah, who, who I married, to, you know, to kind of give her something to read. But now I guess I'm kind of there's a there's all these Civil War memoirs that are amazing because they're written for the generations. You know the essays, the French essays. You know Montaigne. I don't even know if I'm saying his name properly. Um, that's what he says in his preface. You know I'm writing for my generations. So I think that if you have that kind of practical a practical purpose there of I want to tell you about this time and what happened and you'll be able to read it you know, one day into the future, then serves some sort of function that's kind of holy in a way, rather than, again, modernist impulse of, you know, know, art for art's sake sort of sort of notion that I guess we even had a little bit before that. So you're trying So you feel like you're trying to kind of put down how it's you know, how it is uh for you in your time in your place. Yeah, yeah. And again, not to say it's not a complete distortion because it is, but uh, but just that, yeah. But just that. If I can if I can do that, then 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 it's all well and good. Well, and I think, but I I also feel like you know having some sort of real rootedness and having kind of a a, a regional identity uh, or whatever you want to call it is actually uh, can be a great strength. I feel like a lot of great writers have a real strong sense of place you know yeah and you know what i think geography is destiny right that's something that we don't like to talk about and that's something that we kind of poo poo right i think geography is destiny and it's one of those where if you are from a particular philip roth's a regional writer right uh Cora mccarthy's a regional writer whether he's tennessee or whether he's then going and still in somebody else else's region you know a couple a couple years down from his career or uh, Joan Didion's a regional writer. You can you get more regional than L.A.? Um, so I guess I guess all writers are. But then we you know we also have that other thing, and I understand that other thing, that other thing, which is you know kind of the grandma quilts sort of region crap that you get a lot of. Uh, but yeah. Oh, well, we're sound like some pompous asses, aren't we? <laughs> or maybe, maybe I am. Nah, I, I mean, who's the most who's the most pompous ass you've had on this show? No, you don't have to tell me. You tell me after tell me after the tape's done. Uh, <laughs> it's probably me. I, trust me, I worry. I sit around sweating about what I've said on this show every day. Um, but that's sort of the fun of it, you know, is that you don't have yeah, time, exactly, no, exactly. No time to rehearse. But. Uh, and then, um, I, I, like, speaking of destiny, I'm curious to know, like, how did you and your wife meet? You guys met in school, or she, she was... Yeah, we met in school. Um, she had a boyfriend at the time, 
uh, she would still every now and then come over to my come over to my room, right? Her little kissy face. Then we just kind of parted when she graduated. She moved to Denver. I went to law school of all things. You did. Well, I actually okay. went to graduate school. I went to graduate school first. Then I spent almost two years in law school. And then I moved back here, and I ran into her at the mall. It's like a perfect American relationship, right? Oh it counts me out right there at the uh, at the. Uh... I was going to buy Jane Austen's uh, shoot. What's that little known, um, little known book? You know, not all the the popular North North Ranger Abbey, and I might be wrong about that. But I was going I was going to buy I was going to buy a Jane Austen book. It was a Mansfield Park. I think it was the weird one that no one ever reads, which kind of has these gothic overtones. I was going to Walden Books, which has since shut down, and I was going to buy that in the Signet Classic or whatever it was for three ninety nine, and I just purchased it. I was coming back, uh, and I hate Jane Austen. I should probably say that. <laughs> I wanted to read all the books, but I was coming back through uh, through the mall, and there she was, and the rest is history. Isn't that was it. You just said, "Hey, let's say guys." And so then you guys got married shortly thereafter? Yeah, yeah. And let me say this, too. There's nothing, you know, the Flaubert quote, you know, somebody trying to be, you know, I'm bourgeois in my life, so I can be radical in my art. I think it's the exact opposite. Flaubert is another law school dropout like myself. I try to be bourgeois in my art to a certain extent, so I can be radical in my life. And there's nothing more radical than the so-called domestic. You name any radical artist you you know of. I mean, for shit's sake, Oscar Wilde was married with some kids. Um, <laughs> so that's what I feel sometimes when you're coming again, you know, across these little, you know, you're coming across the kids and <laughs> marriage. <laughs> well, how many? And how many kids you have? Two. Two. Okay. Again, that we know of. At least I pay for. <laughs> no, no, I pay. It's, it's, fun, it's fun, though, right? You know, it's a... Oh, yeah, exactly. No one ever tells you. No one ever tells you how much damn fun it's going to be. No one ever tells you how sick and twisted kids are. Yeah. No one ever tells you how sick and twisted the emotions that you'll have as you're raising children um, it, you know, are. It raises the stakes, I feel like. Yeah, completely. It's like, it's like uh, you know, it's like hanging out with little drug addicts all the time. <laughs> it's just weird. It's just weird. Oh my God! Okay, not so, that I want that to make that necessarily part of my work, but yeah, you're gonna you're gonna find out you're gonna find out about stuff. Um. Okay, and then in terms of the uh, publication schedule, just so my listeners can know uh, what to what to track down and then what to expect as we go forward, you have the collected stories. Uh, yeah, that's out. Well, it should be out now, but I guess it it should be out here within the next week or so. I think on Amazon now it's finally shipping, so. And and then uh, maybe one of my favorite uh, titles of recent memory, Crapalasha or Crapalasha. That'll be that'll be, uh, and that's interesting too. If you're from out of the state, there's been a bunch, of, a couple of dissertations written on that. If you're outside of the state or if you're outside of the area, because Appalachia runs from um, uh, New York State into Georgia. If you're outside, it's uh, Appalachia. And if you're inside, it's Appalachia. Right. Um, right. But Crabalachia will be out in March of next year. And then Hill William from New York Tyrant uh, will be out in July or August. All right. Well, I, uh, they're still working out the details. Gotcha. <laughs> well, I, uh, I can't tell you how much uh, fun this has been. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. And I uh, wish you all the best of luck with uh, the stories and with the uh, with the two novels. Okay, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
All right, you guys, there you go. That is the program that is Scott McClanahan. Go get the complete works of Scott McClanahan, Volume 1, available now from Lazy Fascist Press. You can find Scott on the web at hollerpresents.com, hollerpresents.com. He's on Twitter at Scott McClanahan, and he's on Facebook, too. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to this program on iTunes if you haven't done that already. It's free. And uh, it's available at Stitcher 2, also free. Or you can listen on the web at otherpeoplepod.com. And uh, that is free, too. It's all free, folks. Can you believe it? Uh, How about another plug for TNB Books, today's sponsor? Remember to get your copy of The Beautiful Anthology. uh, Or, while you're at it, get a copy of Subversia, an essay collection by D.R. Haney. Or, My Dead Pets Are Interesting, a humor collection by Lenore Zion. Or, Paper Doll Orgy, a cartoon collection by Ted McCagg. All are available wherever books are sold online from TNB Books, the official independent press of The Nervous Breakdown. Please remember that Schopenhauer played the flute and Thomas Wolfe died of tuberculosis that had spread to his brain. I'll be back again soon with another conversation with another author. In the meantime, please do not compare yourself to world-class athletes and entertainers in their 20s who have 2% body fat and multiple vacation homes and can run the 40-yard dash in 4.4 seconds flat and who are worth approximately $50 million on average or something.